Lord, thank you for that, that you've given us this family. Thank you for Calvary, Lord, and for um, all who are here. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, enable us to be a blessing to you by how we bless one another and encourage and help one another. And thank you, Lord, for these opportunities that we have to serve you. Thank you for the men's conference coming up. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring every man and every young man here from this church to that, Lord, so that they may hear your truth, that they may be uh, encouraged in their walk or, Lord, encouraged to, to come to you in salvation. Pray, too, for our, our Honduras trip and those going, that, Lord, you would give them safety and that you would help them to be an encouragement to the church there and effective, Lord, in proclaiming the gospel and in equipping others to do the same. And can we ask for their protection, Lord? that you would watch over them, that you would richly bless them. And Lord, bless your word now. Help us all, Lord, to be attentive, undistracted. Lord, may your spirit work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we've seen so far uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've been in it for a little while, since February. Uh, basically, it's a letter about gospel living, right? Uh, Ephesians 4.1 is really a summary verse for the whole letter where Paul says there, Therefore I urge you, I implore you, I beseech you, as a prisoner of the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. First half of the letter deals with the calling with which you've been called, your salvation. And the second half, chapters 4 to 6, with your response, how you're to walk in response to that salvation. And uh, these last three chapters, Paul's divided them up into six separate sections dealing with six different topics. Five of them he summarizes with these walk commands, and the sixth with a command to stand. And we've looked at the first three walk commands so far, right? That we walk in a manner worthy of our calling by walking in unity, by walking in holiness, and by walking in love. And this morning we're going to hit the fourth of these walk commands found in Ephesians 5. So if you could please stand with me if you're able as I read from Ephesians 5 verses 3 to 14. God has spoken through his servant Paul with these words. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. You may be seated. Did you guys catch the walk command here? What is it? Walk as children of light, right? Verse 8, Paul brings that up. That's kind of the summary command. And light's a common metaphor used in the Scriptures. It's used in reference to understanding, understanding spiritual truth. In fact, back in chapter 4, Paul said not to uh, be like the Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding. Light's also a metaphor for holiness. Right? It's a metaphor for walking in holiness. It, uh, John In 1 John 1, 5 describes it that way where he says, This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. 
and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. So there we see John the apostle there talking about light in the sense of, of our moral behavior, sense of holiness. And here, that's the idea that Paul is giving in Ephesians 5, this light in the sense of holiness, but a specific aspect of holiness, and that is sexual purity. Here Paul talks about that uh, the issue of walking as children of light is to walk as those who are sexually pure. And you remember before when I was talking about, when we hit that section on walk in love, I said Paul's going to move from the front porch into our kitchen and start dealing with very specific, uh, perhaps uncomfortable areas in our lives. Well, now he's going to move from our kitchen into our bedroom. He's going to get very personal because he's going to tackle an issue that's been plaguing humanity from the dawn of time. In fact, you can't get two-thirds of the way through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and you've already encountered premarital sex, adultery, polygamy, homosexuality, prostitution, rape, incest, nudity. We're not even hardly halfway through the first book of the Bible, and we're hit with all that stuff. And by the way, it makes for some very interesting family devotions. Uh, especially with little kids. We, my wife and I picked that book, you know, went through with the kids, and we hit some of these things. Oh, yeah, that's in there. Um, so we got pretty creative in explaining some things without, you know, uh, giving them, without giving them too much information. Sexual sin has been from the very beginning all the way into Paul's day in Ephesus. If you remember, right, that Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Diana, and, and a significant part of that worship was in sexually immoral behavior gross immorality that took place. The Ephesians were bombarded with it, just as we are. This instruction that Paul has given to them is highly appropriate and important for us as well today. Because if there's anything that pervades our culture, it is sexual immorality. In fact, I was going through the ballot last night looking at the various issues and propositions. Do you know that there is a measure for L.A. County as to whether or not porn actors should wear condoms? You're going to vote on that. That's on the election. I mean, why don't we have a, a measure that bans pornography? You know, it's, it's unbelievable. It's right in our face. I mean, you can't even go out into our culture nowadays, even a simple trek to the store with your kids, will have questions coming from the back seat, such as, Mommy, why are those two women kissing like you and Daddy kiss? Or, why is that lady on the billboard in her underwear? Or, what does adult industry mean? Or, what does fill-in-the-blank mean? I remember when uh, one of our children, she was about four years old, she just learned to read. We're in the park together. She's playing on some park equipment as my wife is talking with a friend. And all of a sudden, she hears our little one yelling out, Mommy, what does mm mean? I'm not going to repeat what it was. She, mommy, Mommy, what does mm mean? She's yelling it across the park, you know. And Tina's like, hold on, wait, you know. <laughs> there it was, written in bold letters, graffitied across the children's play equipment. Four-year-old kid. Now exposed to this stuff. The news is saturated with it. Our entertainment is saturated with it. From our music to television to sports. Reality shows. From the subtle to the explicit. You can't even go an hour without being confronted by this whole issue of sexual immorality. And it has had its effect in our culture. In fact, more than two-thirds of men from 18, ages 18 to 34 
Visit a porn site in a typical month. More than 10% of the websites out there are pornographic. 100,000 websites with child pornography. Today's Christian Woman Survey found one in six women actually struggle with addiction to pornography. A 2001 Christian Today survey of pastors found that a third of them struggle with internet porn, some of them on a weekly basis. 1998 study showed 14% of women and 24% of men confessed or admitted to committing adultery. More recent study, those numbers are up closer to 50% for both men and women that admit to committing adultery. There's almost 7 million unmarried couples living together in this country, according to census data. And tragically, every two minutes, someone in the U.S. will be sexually assaulted. One in four girls, one in six boys by the time they're 18. And I could go on and on. And the sad thing is, most of these things are not shocking. We're not surprised by that. It's amazing. It's not just the immorality itself, but it's also what it brings, right? Destroyed families, ruined lives, reputations gone, lies, deceit, Rape, murder, abortion, disease, enslavement, jealousy, all these things that are brought about and are rooted within our sexual immorality. It's not like a pebble has been thrown into the pond, but like a meteor has crashed into the lake. And what's even more alarming and more concerning is it's not just out there, but it's inside the body of Christ, even here in Calvary. In fact, the last three individuals that were church disciplined from this church, the reason was because they refused to repent from their sexual immorality. It's a big deal. And what Paul has to say here in Ephesians 5 is relevant to you and to me, to every single one of us. So this week and next, we're going to have a frank conversation about it. We need to talk about these things. And now some of you I know at this moment may be tempted to tune me out. Maybe this is an area that you struggle with. And you don't want to have to feel guilty again. Or maybe this is an area that's it's just embarrassing to talk about. Or maybe you feel that this kind of a discussion needs to happen behind closed doors. But those days are over. Those days are gone. Of any place that should be talking about this, it's here. Of anyone that we should be listening to, it is what God has to say on the subject of sexual purity. This is something we have to talk about. And if there's any group of people that needs to be talking about it, it's you and me. This needs to be part of our conversation. Because we need to be equipped, not just for our own souls, but also for our children's. Satan isn't waiting until your kids are 18 and then going after them. He was going after my daughter at four years old. Exposing her to things that she should not be exposed to. He's after your kids. And he's starting young. In fact, over 11 million teens regularly view pornography. Nearly two-thirds of teenagers have engaged in sexual activity before they graduate high school. Two-thirds. The number of unmarried pregnant teenagers has grown from 13% in 1950 to 79% in 2000. Over one-third of those young women will end their pregnancy by abortion. 2006 survey of university students found that over 80% of them had some type of sexual interaction, whether it be from chat sites or phones or texting or IMing or webcams or, you know, the latest craze they call sexting, right? Sending pictures of yourself that shouldn't be sent. 
A fellow pastor told me of how at a family gathering, his 10-year-old daughter was having another 10-year-old girl explaining to her the mechanics of oral sex. A family gathering. I first heard about kids having sex from a girl in my 6th grade class who was telling of her exploits. And this was in a conservative Christian school. Dear brothers and sisters, please, I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm not trying to be offensive or sensational or or make waves here. I'm sorry that I, I have to be more graphic than maybe some of you are comfortable with. But we have to open our eyes now for the sake of our own marriages, for the sake of our own children. We can't just stick our head in the sand anymore because Satan's is not in the sand. He's out looking, right, as a lion seeking someone to devour. And you know one of the main things he's using is sex. Sexual immorality. And he doesn't play fair. He's not chivalrous. Do you know the average age of exposure to Internet pornography is 11 years old? (laughs) The average age. And now we could all, you know, we could decide, okay, we're just going to run. We've got to get out of here. Let's all go run and hide. Let's all get tickets to some island. We'll go to Honduras. There's probably some island off of the coast of Honduras there we can, we can go stay at. We can run away. Or we could lock ourselves in our homes, right? But then there's a problem with that because we've been commanded by our Lord and Savior to be salt and light. We've been commanded by Him to go to the lost because they're in darkness as we were. And to share the gospel with them. And you can't do that when you're in hiding. And there's even another bigger problem with that. We could all go to an island together. But guess what's coming with us? Yeah, our own hearts. Our own immoral desires within our hearts are going to take the journey with us. You could go alone to an island and you're still going to have a problem. No, the answer isn't running. And praise God, he's not left us defenseless. We have hope. There is hope. God has given us His Word. And God has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be pure, to enable us to live a holy life. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants a pure church. Just a few verses later in Ephesians 5, it says that Jesus gave Himself up for us, for the body of Christ And he says there in verse 25 that he might present her having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and blameless. Jesus wants a pure bride. And he deserves one. And Paul, in these verses in Ephesians 5, 3 to 14, he tells us how to get there. There's two simple points that he gives basically in this section. One is loathe the lust. And the second is to love the light. We're going to focus on the first point this morning, to loathe the lust. And we'll do that by looking at two subpoints. One is the warnings to flee immorality, and secondly, the purpose behind those warnings. And if you notice, there are several commands that Paul gives here. I counted seven of them. Listen to them again. Immorality must not be named among you. Let no one deceive you. Do not be partakers with them. Walk as children of light. Do not participate in the wicked deeds. Instead, expose them. And then an applied one in verse 4, let there be no filthy speech. Five of those seven commands are prohibitive. Five of them come at it from the negative angle, things you're not to do. Paul's emphasizing something here, isn't he? Run, flee, get out of there. Don't do it. Don't pursue it. Don't be a part of it. 
Stay away. <laughs> and the first thing that he commands is, but do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you. Immorality is the Greek word porneia. Can refer to premarital sex or fornication, to adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution. Essentially, it's any sexual activity outside of marriage. Jesus identifies this in Matthew 5.32 when he says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for porneia, and marries another, uh, makes her commit adultery. But it isn't just married people that are prohibited from sexual immorality, is it? 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul, speaking to everybody, says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, or pernea, so that each of you know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's clear here, God says, God's will, his desire, what he wants is that none of us ever engages in any sexual activity outside of marriage, whether you're married or not. Any intimate act that you would do with your spouse never is to be done with anyone else. Any intimate act. In fact, Jesus said even a look can qualify as something sexually immoral, right? Matthew 5, verse 27, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who does what? Looks at a woman with lust in her, his heart has already committed adultery. It's a pretty high standard. (laughs) It's pretty high. Listen, this is one of the main reasons why self-gratification is sinful. Because it's driven by lusts. It's driven by selfish desires. And it also is a sexual act outside of marriage. And I know there are many people who would say that it's okay, it's a, a way to release pressure, it's, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody, whatever. No, it's wrong. And until you call it a sin that needs to be repented of, you're not going to be free from it. It's a sexual activity outside of marriage driven by lust. Paul says in Ephesians 5, not to let that or any other form of sexual immorality even be named among you. And I like how the NIV puts it. Not even a hint, not even a whisper should be among his people. We're to be so far from it that we're beyond suspicion is the idea. If someone were to look at your computer, if someone were to go into your room or were with you all the day, that they wouldn't see anything in your life that smacked of a suspicious nature in regards to this area. Some people have asked me about living together, if that's okay. They say, well, what, what if we, can we live together? As long as we don't do anything sexual, we're going to abstain from any of that activity. Is it okay to, to live together? Well, one is, if it were ever possible, and I highly doubt it. In fact, those that have asked me about it, I usually say, well, has this happened? And yeah. Okay, well, let's, even if it were possible, though, if you had two people living together, what would everyone else think was going on? Think there'd be a hint of immorality in that circumstance? Yeah, there would. There are certain books that some of you ladies should not be reading because they're arousing in you passions and desires that are not pure, not even a hint. Men, there are magazines, websites that you shouldn't be going to, and they may not even be pornographic ones per se, but maybe there's things on them and you think, well, they're not affecting me. Well, that may be true. Again, highly doubt it. But even if that were true, not even a hint... 
What's the content of what you listen to, what you watch? Not even a hint. If you struggle with your computer or your iPhone or your TV or whatever it is, get rid of it. Throw that book away. Toss it in the trash. I, I love that scene in Fireproof. If you've seen that movie where a man's struggling with the, uh, internet pornography and his marriage is going down the tank. And it's a great picture. He walks outside his house with his computer and he dumps it in the trash. Guess what happened next? His marriage got fixed. There is a connection. But get rid of it. What is it worth to you? Oh, I got to have a computer. I got to have a phone. No, you don't. You can live without it if it means to be pure. You really can. Now, I hope I, I'm, I hope I'm not coming across as the purity police, the morality police, and I'm giving you all these laws and rules that you have to follow. That's a problem. We often do it that way, where we have these do's and don'ts that we're supposed to do or not do, and we try to work it out in the flesh and say, oh, I can't do that, or I better not do that. That's not the idea here. It's not about how close I can get to the line. It's about how close I can get to the Savior. Big difference. Not even a hint. And so to further emphasize the point in verse 3, Paul adds the words impurity, but let there not be immorality or impurity. That's a general word for wickedness or evil, but here in this context it's primarily used actually for sexual sin, sexual deviancy. Paul adds the word greed, which is the selfish, covetous desire that drives sexual immorality. And Paul says, hey, all these need to be removed far from us. Then in verse 4, Paul says, There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather giving of thanks. Paul moves from this issue of immorality in our actions to even in our speech. Filthiness here is a term that means ugly or shameful. And here in this context, he's talking about our words. It's, it's ugly or shameful words. It's obscene speech, disgusting speech, indecent. Silly talk is that dull or foolish speech, something you probably hear from somebody who is drunk. It's a vulgar type of speech, gutter speech. Coarse jesting, which is generally a word that just means a person who's witty. But in this context, in talking about sexual immorality, it's a person that's telling dirty jokes, double entendres, hidden meanings, sexual subtle overtones, immoral humor. And Paul's saying we not only have to be careful with our actions, but also with our words. Anything of a sexual or impure nature must be eliminated even from our vocabulary. We don't laugh at the dirty joke. We don't respond to the lewd comment. I remember at work, you know, when I started working in a certain place that, you know, all the guys would be telling dirty jokes, but, hey, check her out, you know, making these lewd responses and remarks. And I, I didn't know necessarily what, I, what to do, so I just sat there with a blank stare on my face. Like that. It's very, it's very biblical. <laughs> right, but I, you know what? After a while, they stopped. They got the idea. I don't want to listen to that. And you know, it wasn't that easy sometimes because sometimes they said things that were funny. Yeah, I admit it. My flesh was going, oh, that was a good one. But I, I had to say, no, Tim, this is ungodly speech. You have to not respond to it. You know, I didn't make a big deal about it to them. I think maybe it would be better at times. I should have said, well, I actually did a couple times say something, but... You know, I just gave them the message, hey, this is not something I want to participate in. And how much more so for the rest of us here? We definitely must be this way with one another. That vulgar speech or jokes that have sexual innuendo. Again, we, we can't be having this as part of our conversation. 
Now, this doesn't mean we can't talk about sexual things. Otherwise, I'm in big trouble for this morning. Right? No, the Word of God is, is very explicit at times. It's very open about this subject. Many different places in Scripture that talk about sexual things that have happened and, and, and God's perspective on the whole matter. But the issue is how do we treat that matter? Do we treat it with delicacy and honor? Do we treat it with the idea of sanctifying intimacy in marriage? Because that's what we need to remember. In our words and our actions, we need to treat marriage with sanctity and we need to not incite lust in other people by what we say or what we do. Now, those who might say, well, come on, a little joke here and there. Really? I mean, you know, I can look at someone and just admire their beauty. Come on. Or, or you know, once a coworker he tried to get me in, involved in that where he'd say, you know, my wife gives me permission to go to strip clubs as long as I look but don't touch. Do you want to go? Or some would say, well, premarital sex is okay because we're married in our hearts. Or others say, well, the Bible's outdated on these issues. Now, this is an old book, you know, this is a very Victorian perspective, puritanical. Or some, they try to tell you that watching immorality is no big deal as long as it, you know, you don't do anything with it. Others claim in the end, God will forgive you. You know, things that when we choose not to participate in those activities that other people are doing, they, they, want, they don't want to feel bad about it, so they want to draw you in. That's why Paul says, let no one deceive you. Look at verse 6, I think it is. Yeah, let no one deceive you with empty words, vain words, futile words. Because they're trying to entice you to go along with them. Don't be misled by anyone encouraging immoral behavior. Don't be lured in. And even those who name the name of Christ. And parents, don't assume the voices in your children's lives are giving them the biblical perspective on this issue. You need to be talking to them. You need to be interacting with them because, again, Satan is after your kids and he's the worst of pedophiles. He wants your children engaged in the cesspool of sexual sin. He's after them. You know, at a recent youth camp, I asked a group of junior high and high school boys, I, I said, how many of you ha- has your dad talked to you about this issue of purity? Less than 10% of them raised their hand. Really, dads? Really? You you hoping someone here is going to talk to them about it? Are you thinking maybe their influences at at school and their neighborhoods are going to give them the biblical view of sexual purity? You, You leaving this to something for your wives to do or take care of? Man, you you think your kids don't have the same struggles that you do, especially your boys? Men come alongside them. If there's ever a time to be vigilant with our kids, it's now, and they need to hear it from your their dads. They need to see it in you. Talk to them now about purity. Talk to them now about what makes it hard. Even when my son was young, I would ask him questions and I'd watch and observe as he looking at things he shouldn't look at. And I'd ask him, you know, does that picture bother you? I wouldn't give him details, but I'd start the conversation. And what do your kids have in their rooms? Do they have a computer there, unmonitored, a, a television, a, a, an electronic handheld device? With no supervision, no oversight, you might as well fill their drawer full of drugs and alcohol and tell them, go ahead and try it. That's exactly what you're doing. It is that dangerous. It is dangerous. 
And again, I'm not trying to be sensational here. I'm not trying to go over the top and shock you into response. This is reality. I want to remind you, sexual lust is powerful. And I I really don't need to tell most of you that because you know it. You understand it. You've lived it. Maybe you're struggling with it now. It is powerful. Start talking to your children when they're young so that it's not so uncomfortable as they get older. And if you're thinking, well, I don't know how to talk to them about that, um, that we've got several purity conferences that we've held here over the years. The website has uh, the sessions on them. Go to the website. Or you can go ask Pastor Brock. He's our parenting expert in this church, especially on this topic. <laughs> He's not here, but I was teasing him earlier. But no, seek help. Do something, though. Don't just let time pass by and keep your head in the sand and ignore it and just hope your kids won't have any problems with it because they will. I guarantee they will if that's been your response. Talk to them. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, your kids are going to want to get out of that room. But don't let them. Don't let them. Paul conveys this sense of urgency as he repeats in verse 7, don't be partakers with them. He talks about in verse 11, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. There's an urgency here. You need to consider who you spend your time with. You need to consider how you spend that free time, what kind of circumstances you're in. And if there are any that lead you into temptation, then you need to flee. If there are any persons that lead you into temptation... You need to move away from those relationships. I remember on several trips to the Far East that I take for business, and many times our hosts there would, would offer uh, certain opportunities. I just say, hey, take me home. Take me to the hotel, or I'm getting a cab. You need to stay away from it. And those of you who work with members of the opposite sex, we need to be very careful here. Watch those lunch appointments that you have. Don't be alone with another male or female. Be careful with that. Business trips together. Meetings behind closed doors on a regular basis. We have to watch ourselves because you're courting danger. I can't tell you the number of immoral relationships that I uh, found out about or witnessed within the workplace that I was in. Two in particular where they left their spouse and ran away with this other person that they worked with. Yeah, this may seem extreme. Really, Tim? Come on, relax. Relaxing's for heaven. We need to be vigilant now. We're not in a comfort area. We're not in a pleasure resort. We're in a war. You remember that? You're in a war. And this is one of the main weapons that Satan is using because he knows our hearts. And he has masterfully worked within our culture and our world to address that desire and lust in our hearts. And he's not doing it in a civil manner. This is a battle zone. We can relax in heaven. We can relax the rules, if you will, there. We've got to be vigilant here. You can't assume that you're not susceptible. And that's why Paul puts the line way over here. He says, don't even let immorality be a hint among you. Watch your speech even. Don't participate with others who are involved in sexual things. Be careful what you listen to, what you watch. Don't take any chances, is his idea. Not a one. Now why? Why is this such a big deal? 
You ever ask yourself that? Why all these commands here? Why this major tone of warning? We see that a lot in the Bible. One of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't commit adultery. And he does it twice, by the way. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Interesting. Of the six direct instructions to us, how we are to treat one another, two of the six are related to this issue. Now, why? Well, let's consider our second point, the purpose behind these warnings. Several times in verses 3 to 14, Paul not only gives the command, but he adds the word for or because. He gives us the reason behind the command. And we're not going to cover all of them today, but I want to focus in on on, uh, this one in verse 5 where he says, For or because this you know with certainty, that is, without a doubt, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's to be no hint of immorality in our lives, no acceptance or entertainment by coarse jokes or coarse speech or or vulgar words, no partnership with those who are involved in sexual sin. Why? Because those are the things that God severely deals with, that He severely judges. 1 Corinthians 1.9 is a similar statement. Paul says there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And notice he gives some more specific sins here. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrepentant, immoral person will not be in heaven. If they do not repent and turn from those sins, they will not enjoy the kingdom of God. Paul says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Why? Because or for these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This kind of activity angers God. He's not pleased with it. In fact, we get a pretty graphic and sobering illustration with Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? And Paul's implying in verse or chapter 5 here that if you are God's child, why would you knowingly do something that you know angers your father, that you know displeases him? I mean, my kids would never be caught wearing a Trojan sweatshirt in my home. <laughs> Philip, you can have one. You can bring yours, but just you. Right? Hey, again, that's tongue in cheek, but right? They would never do something that they know would displease me or anger me for most of the time. Or, right, if they knew that would hurt my dad, that would, that would anger him. He hates that. It's the same for us. Why would we do anything that our father who sent his son to die for us Why would we do anything that that brings about His wrath? That's why in Ephesians 5, 4, sexual impurity is said it's not fitting for believers. Later on, he says it's disgraceful, the things that are done in secret. And we should never be near such behavior. But then the question is, well, why is he so angry? Why does sexual immorality such a big deal to God? Why does he respond in such a way? Why do we have verses like this that, that talk about a very harsh judgment? Why does he put these tight boundaries in? I mean, what's wrong if there are two consenting adults? What's wrong if I lust after someone as long as I keep it to myself? Why is sexual purity a big deal to God? Well, sexual purity is a big deal to God because marriage is a big deal to God. God confines intimacy within a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Sexual purity is bound up in the sanctity of marriage. They're interwoven, right? God made Adam. Then he declared what? Something wasn't good about the situation. 
right? Adam's alone, eating those chicken pot pies all by himself, <laughs> lamenting the situation, and God brings Eve. He brings them into a special relationship, a friendship, a partnership, a, a companionship, unlike any other. And Moses summarizes it when he says at the end of that chapter, in verse 24 of Genesis 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That verse provides the simplest and clearest description of marriage. A man and woman leave their home physically, leave the authority structure, they become a new entity, one. They're one together. They're described as one flesh. And that's not just the physical aspect. That, of course, includes it. But emotionally and socially, physically, they are one person. Ephesians 5, 28 to 31 points that out when Paul says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For, and then he quotes Moses, This reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul's speaking here of a special union between a husband and a wife. And physical intimacy within that relationship, do you know what that is? That's an outward expression of an inward reality. And that's why it's only to be between those two people. It represents a unique covenant. That sexual intimacy is representative of a mysterious event where man and wife come together as one. It's one of the most vulnerable and most intimate of experiences. And you know what it is? It's a visible representation of the oneness in marriage that God designed it for. That's what Hebrews 13.4 talks about, that we, because of that, need to honor marriage and cherish it and uphold it and extol it. He says there in Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. They're interrelated, because fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Honor here means costly. It means precious. It means of great value. The writer of Hebrews there is saying, you need to highly respect and honor and cherish marriage because it is so precious. Undefiled there carries the idea of being pure and holy, morally spotless. And the type of defilement the author has here, he talks about, is sexual immorality. And notice, honoring marriage and purity, he puts in the same sentence. Within that verse, God's saying here that marriage must be treated as of great value, as of precious, that there must be no filthiness that's allowed to be introduced within that relationship. Because to attack intimacy and pollute it is to attack the sanctity of marriage. No one's to disrespect in that way. I mean, what if you took a Waterford vase, crystal vase, and used it as a spittoon? I mean, not only would it be gross, but wouldn't, wouldn't that degrade the value of that vase? Or what if you took a, had, a, had access to the original Constitution and you flipped it over and started playing tic-tac-toe on the back of it? Or what if you went into your wife's closet and you found her favorite dress, her most beautiful dress, and you used it to work on the car? Not only would that dress never be the same, but you, you'll probably never be the same either. <laughs> right? That dress would be forever tainted and ruined. It would bring a lasting tarnish to the preciousness of marriage. 
And in the same way, sex outside of marriage does that, whether you're single or married. And take note of that, that Hebrews 13, 4 isn't addressing married people because he says fornicators and adulterers. Right? Adultery is what takes place as sex outside of marriage when you're married. Fornication is sex outside of marriage when you're single. Everyone needs to honor marriage, whether you're married or single. And if you're single, don't defile the preciousness of marriage by sharing a special bond meant only for a spouse. Not only disrespects marriage, but it robs another person of a gift that God has prepared for them through you. Every sexual act involves someone's spouse. And it's only pure and honorable when it's your own. Be reminded that if you are single now, you can extol the sacredness of marriage even being single. Because in your purity, you're telling the world that intimacy is a wonderful gift that God has designed to express and be a visible representation of marriage. And I can extol it even as a single person. I can honor that even though I'm not married by remaining pure. Don't view sex as some biological need that needs to be met, but see it as a gift to be protected. Now you may be thinking at this point, okay, I get it, I get it. Sexual purity is important because marriage is important, but, but why is marriage important? Why is it a big deal to God? Well, there's a whole another sermon there, but let me just give you a few things to think about in regards to this. Sexual purity in marriage it not only preserves the preciousness of marriage, but, but to maintain purity also requires that you have what character quality? That you be what? Loyal? Maintain your commitment? Have integrity? And you know what? God designed marriage as a living illustration of His commitment to His people, right? The church is the what of Christ? Bride of Christ. When Paul talks about marriage later in Ephesians 5, that's the relationship that he uses to illustrate the reality of Christ and His bride. That marriage is a representation of that. Marriage is to mimic that. Marriage is an illustration of it. In fact, what are we going to be doing before Christ returned to finally wipe out His enemies in Revelation 19, before the millennium? You know we're going to be in a celebration? We're going to be eating together. And you know what that celebration is going to be called or is called? A marriage feast. When Christ will be united with His bride, at that moment we'll have our new glorified bodies and we will be that pure and sanctified and holy people that Jesus died to bring about. You see, God wants the marriage covenant honored and cherished because it's a reflection of His covenant to His people. He is faithful. He is loyal. He is committed. He will never break His promise. And He wants marriage to mirror that. There's another reason marriage is so important to God. You see, sexual intimacy is a gift God has given not only for us to enjoy, but also to know what it feels like when God's people turn away from Him. Right in the Old Testament, you remember... God delivered His people, right, Israel. He saved them out of a bondage to Egypt. He provided them a new and promised land. He, he gave them a spe- special relationship with Himself, protected them. And then they would turn away from Him, right? They'd rebel. They'd follow after other gods. And what is it that God then said they were doing in that act? Remember? Committing adultery. He called them harlots. 
and prostitutes. Graphic language. You know why? Why did he do that? Why does James 4 say, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? What does that evoke? That when God's people turn their back on him, it feels exactly like a spouse feels when their husband or wife has committed adultery. That's what it feels like to God. He wants us to understand him better by giving us sexual intimacy in marriage. So we'd understand God more. You see, intimacy is not primarily biological, it's theological. It gives us an understanding and a perspective. It helps us to know God better. It's a way in which He can communicate to us what He thinks and feels regarding particularly sin of betrayal. You see why sanctity in marriage is so important? You see why maintaining purity is so vital? And again, that purity begins with the little things, right? The thoughts begins with what I look at. See, brothers and sisters, we we need to loathe the lust. Now, maybe this morning, maybe it happened right at the beginning, or as we've been talking together and looking at these verses, you're you're saying, well, you know, I've been I've been in a moral relationship, or I'm in one now, or I'm looking at things I shouldn't look at, or I am gratifying myself and I can't stop, or I keep fantasizing about being with someone else, or I flirt with others all the time. I flaunt myself in order to get attention. Or I'm watching things that I shouldn't. I'm, I'm reading things that tempt me to lust. I, I'm talking about inappropriate things. I, I struggle with homosexuality and homosexual desires. But I feel caught. I feel trapped. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to break free. Well, that's why we have hope. There's hope. Maybe you've done some things and you're feeling the guilt and, and weight of that, things that I've talked about. Maybe you have violated a trust within marriage, while single or married. Maybe that guilt is now hanging over you because you never really dealt with it. There is a way out. Because where does freedom from all sin begin, brothers and sisters? Foot of the cross, right? Bring Jesus a broken heart. Confess it. That's what David did after his immorality, right? Probably the most famous sexually immoral event in the Bible. When David committed adultery and then murdered to cover it up. In Psalm 51, David is a man crying out for forgiveness as he says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that's the person that God will forgive and heal. That's the person that God will restore. Come to Him with that shame and guilt. Shame and guilt's a good thing if it drives you to repentance. God provides that as a means of grace in order that I would feel bad so that I would make things right with the Lord, that I would go to Him and confess. And all God is looking for is a broken heart, one that's humble, seeking mercy. Because you know what God does with a broken heart? He restores it. He changes it. He converts it. He heals it. That's what God does with those who are contrite. And He'll release you from the guilt and the burden and the power of that sin in your life. You want that? You want that? Now maybe like David, your sexual sin has led to other sins. For David, it was murder. 
There may be some of you ladies in this room who have done the same thing through abortion. You got pregnant. You weren't expecting it. You were afraid. You were pressured. And you aborted your baby. And now you carry the shame and the stigma and nobody can find out. No one can know this. If they knew this, you tell yourself, well, it's in the past. It happened a long time ago. I'm over it. God, God forgave me. But you still feel the guilt. You still feel the pain. And for me to even bring up the word abortion, your heart just sank. You know what? David did the same thing that you did. He got a woman pregnant and he murdered someone to cover it up. And what did God do with him? He graciously brought Nathan. Nathan said, David, you've blown it. You've sinned. And that was what God used to break David's heart. And he confessed and he repented. And do you know what God did then? He forgave him. He forgave him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, including abortion, including sexual immorality. If you've had an abortion and you feel that weight, that guilt, there are people here who want to help. There's one woman here, Ardina Clopine. She has a post-abortion Bible study looking at the Word. I would encourage you to contact her. If you don't know her or know her number, contact the church office and you can do it anonymously and ask Ruth for the information and she'll direct you there to Ardina to talk to her about this. Be free from the guilt and the shame. Don't live with this alone anymore. You don't have to. For some of you, others may be struggling with some other form of sexual immorality. No one else knows. Let this day be the day of freedom. Don't hold on to it anymore. Don't hide it anymore. I know you may feel great shame and think about, man, somebody else knew about this. It's terrifying. I might get ostracized or condemned. But you know what? Stop hiding. Stop hiding that sin. It gains power in the dark. You need to go to a brother or sister and turn on the light by telling them. You won't be looked at with disgust because we all know we're sinners in this room, right? And I think one of the main reasons you may still be struggling with this sin is because you're not willing to confess it to a brother or sister in Christ. Yes, God is the one who forgives you. He's the one you ultimately need to confess to. But there's a means in which He brings about sanctification. And He wants to use us in one another's lives to do that. Right? Right? James, in his wisdom, says, Confess your sins to one another. Because he knew the power of bringing out into the light. You know, it's easy to be quietly in our closet telling God about it. That's easy in some respects. It's a lot harder to tell a human being sitting there, standing there, looking you face to face. And James knew it's a powerful weapon against sin, especially sexual sin. So he says, confess it. Tell a brother or sister. I know for some of you maybe that are struggling with homosexuality, that is the last thing that you want to do. Especially to let someone know here in a conservative Bible church? Well, that's like the death sentence. But you know what? Don't live in silence. 
Open up and talk to somebody about it. And don't worry about the response. If they're a true believer, then they know I'm a wicked sinner too, just like you, bud. I've done terrible things. I've thought terrible things. Maybe I haven't done the things you're talking about, but I've done some others. If that person's a true believer, they will show you compassion and grace and they will help you. But don't hide it. Homosexuality is a powerful, powerful desire, powerful sin. Be free from it. Probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to do is to tell my wife that I struggled with pornography even after we were married. That I told her even after we were married that I had lusted after other women. Jesus said when I did that, I committed adultery against her. And to tell her that, I didn't want to... You know, appear less godly in her eyes. I didn't want her to carry the burden of having to forgive a sin like that. I didn't want to be ashamed before her. I didn't want to hurt her. But you know, when I told her, that confession took power from my lust. The battery of lust got drained that day because it was out in the open. Satan didn't have that leverage anymore. So now I've told you my sin. I did it here publicly. You go and do the same. Talk to a brother or sister in Christ about it. Don't keep it hidden or you'll never be free. If you're going to keep your sin secret, if you're going to play the I'm a good Christian and I got it all together game, then you know what? Let's just pack it up and go home. Let's stop being actors. Let's stop playing a part. Let's stop trying to uphold an image. If you want to become more like Jesus, you've got to deal with your sin. And we're all struggling with sin here, right? And to keep, you keep it to ourselves, you're not helping anybody. God hasn't designed us to function that way. There's no perfect person in here. And if you ever talk to somebody that gives you that uh, air about them, go to somebody else. Because that guy doesn't get it. We're all in a struggle here together, especially in this area of sexual purity. So get rid of the pretense, get rid of the hypocrisy, and talk to a brother or sister. That is real Christianity. That's what is true. No more pretense, no more games. If you want to keep playing that, stop coming to church. Because Jesus didn't come to save perfect people came to save sinners, sinners like us. So confess your sin to God and to one another. That's the first step to freedom. There is such power at the cross when you confess. Jesus' blood is potent because it not only gives and grants forgiveness, but it pulls the guilt from you and the power of that sin. And Jesus wants you to involve brothers and sisters in that process. Because one, you know what? If you go and talk to somebody else about your struggles, guess what? They may have the same one. I have seen it so many times where someone confesses their sin and that's the transparency that brings that other brother or sister to do the same. So even in your own confession, it's not just about you. So I would again implore you, be liberated. And the first step to that liberation 
is to confess that sin. We'll talk about, there's a few other steps that Paul gives here in this passage. We'll look at those next week. But let today, let today be the day of confession. Let today be a date in your mind. October 14th, I went and talked to that other person and I told him about that sin in my life and God freed me. Yeah, there's maybe still struggle after that. But like I said, the battery's got a limited life on it and there's a big power surge that comes out of it when you confess. So do that. Let today be the day that you resolve to change by the grace of God. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now in silent prayer, to talk to God about it and ask him to empower you to do this. Because you know what? This may terrify some of you. And you've got that heart racing again going, I know I need to confess, but I just can't. I just can't. Well, you're right. You can't. So let's ask God to help. So let's spend a minute and do that now. Lord Jesus, you know all our hearts. There's nothing hidden from you. Father, your word says that nothing is unseen from your eye. That, Lord, in Proverbs 5, it talks about the the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. And there's nothing hidden from you. But, Lord, we seem to think we can hide things. As long as we don't tell anyone that we can deal with their sin on our own or we just ask you to forgive us and, and move on and yet we keep battling we keep struggling father help us to confess to be open about our sin with one another with you we know ultimately you're the one that we need to beg forgiveness from but god at times we or we just think that just a few words and and we're fine and we move on and it really hasn't been from a broken and contrite heart we really haven't been willing Lord, to have the power of sin broken in us because of our pride and wanting to hide it from others. And I pray, Lord, today be the day, Lord, that you would move in us. I pray, Lord, for any here that don't know you, that are caught in the bondage of sexual immorality, that you would break them free as they see the power through the death of your son to free them from sin, that he died so that we might live, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might be made holy and blameless before you. Grant them, Lord, forgiveness. Grant them repentance. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us, that you will enable each one of us, Lord, to deal seriously with the sexual immorality in our lives so that you would have a holy and pure bride. Thank you for this church, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I just want to see all of us, myself included, be more pure and holy and blameless before you and to honor marriage through how I live and how we live and to honor you. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, heavy heavy words, heavy subject, but needed. And I hope that you don't let time pass because every moment, every minute, every hour, every day that you just put it out, it's going to be that much harder. So make a resolve today to talk to someone and to pray for those around you. And just pray too this week, Lord, that you would be um, really focused on your own purity, that the Lord bless that. So with that, have a great time of fellowship with one another, and you're dismissed.